want to read a lengthy portion of scripture here this morning. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1 and also chapter 2. If you turn in your Bibles with me, please. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If, I, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, he you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor and he will accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offerings and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you and my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. 
says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And do not be faithless. This is, uh, in particular, primarily this whole passage of Scripture, while it's addressed to Judah, especially as we get into the sections on divorce, is uh, specifically, more specifically, directed at Israel as a nation. These passages are, in particular, addressed to the priesthood, to the spiritual leaders of Israel. And if there is ever a convicting text for pastors and for spiritual leaders, it is this text. It's amazing how quickly Israel had fallen away. They had the temple that had been rebuilt, the second temple, the second temple period that would last until 70 AD, the walls had been rebuilt by Nehemiah about 20 years before. So you have the temple in place for about 85 years. So you have this magnificent temple, although some of the people who saw the original temple, the first temple under Solomon, the older men, the older women, wept when they saw the second temple. But all of a sudden, there was a disregard for God not only in the, the laity, so to speak, but even in the clergy, even in the, in the priesthood. Instead of fearing the name of the Lord, there was, there was not a fear even among the spiritual leadership of Israel. There wasn't a true godliness, which says to us, you can have all sorts of things in place. You can have a magnificent temple, new walls, relative independence, although they are still under the authority of Persia, and have hearts that are not changed. In fact, God says here to the priests, he says, you, uh, you despise me. 
When we talk about this word despise, we are talking about um, holding God with contempt or holding him with disdain. If you were talking to the priests of this age, they would not say that they hated God or that they held some kind of bitterness or disdain or contempt for the Lord, but the truth was they disregarded God. Oh, they went through the motions, but God comes along and says, you're going through the motions, but the truth of the matter is your, your hearts are far from me. Even in the spiritual leadership, your hearts are far from me. This, this word that can be translated disdain or contempt can also be seen to be disregard. By the way, it's used like this in Genesis chapter 25. If you flip over there, you see Esau despised his, um, his birthright, meaning that he disregarded it. Uh, he did not prize it. He did not appreciate it. Flip over to uh, Genesis chapter uh, 25, Genesis 25, verse 34. says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, stew so he is selling his, his birthright here. Esau is selling it to Jacob uh, for a, a pot of stew. And so Esau, he ate it and drank and rose and went his way. What a, what a desperate man. He held his uh, birthright lightly. In fact, the text here says, thus Esau despised his birthright. That is, he had disregard for it. He didn't care about it. He said, listen, I'll, I'll trade it. I'll trade it uh, to you, Jacob, for a bowl of stew. We see the same word if you go over to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51 where this word can be used in terms for disregard. Psalm chapter 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. So God wants us to come to him with this, this broken spirit before him. A question of brokenness is being asked here. But it says this, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not, Despise. That is, God, you will not disregard the one who comes to you with a broken heart. So the Lord never disregards the one who comes to him and says, Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm broken about this. Lord, I'm broken up about that. The Lord doesn't say, Well, I'm not going to hear, hear your prayer. In fact, the scripture tells us very clearly that he is, he is near to the, to the brokenhearted. And sometimes what his, his desire is to do in our life is to break us so that we come to him with a broken spirit before him. But the truth is these priests, the, these leaders of Israel, had great disregard for the Lord. And they were not treating him with honor. They were not treating him with appreciation. And so the question is, what were, what were they doing to disregard God? What were they doing to despise him and treat him with contempt? Well, the first thing they were doing was they were offering sacrifices that were named. They were offering to him polluted sacrifices. The Lord had orchestrated the sacrificial system, and when a sacrifice was given to the Lord, it had to be pure. 
and it had to be clean. These sacrifices would ultimately represent the purest sacrifice that would ever be given to show us the very worth of God himself. When Jesus Christ came into this world, he didn't sin a little bit. He never stumbled, even once. He was pure in everything he did. So the whole sacrificial system was pointing toward Christ, our unblemished sacrifice. And therefore, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, because they were pointing to Christ, they also had to be spotless and unblemished. It wasn't that the Lord doesn't care about uh, animals that are maimed or blind. In fact, if you see an animal with perhaps three legs, uh, God cares about that animal. In fact, in Proverbs, it tells us that a righteous man, a man who is not cruel, even cares for the life of his beasts. Lydia and I were reading that the other morning before School And we were talking about how even kind men will care for their animals. Now, don't let that prevent you from eating a steak. That is not where we are going. But there's a, there's a difference between a, a kind-hearted man, a kind-hearted farmer, and one who is, who is cruel. So the Lord cares about all animals, but he wants pure animals. Ones that are not defective. Because when they are brought to him, they are symbolizing the worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the sacrifice that he would give that is of infinite and unblemished worth. This is why when we come before the Lord, we say, Jesus, you are, you are worthy of all praise. Lord, you never sinned even once. Lord, even in your childhood, you never sinned, unblemished, spotless in every way. And yet the Lord says to the priests, you really, you don't care. You don't care about the laws that I have laid down. You have disdain for me. You have disregard for me. Because when you come and you offer sacrifices, you offer sacrifices, you bring blind sheep. You bring pigeons and bulls that are defective and diseased. Priest, you don't seem to care. In fact, if you look with me at chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? You don't care. The Lord is saying this is an evil thing that you are you are bringing these blemish sacrifices before me. And when you offer those that are, are lame or sick, is that not evil? I can't help but remember a sermon that was preached by our dear Sean Pratt at the Gospel Rescue Mission. And I remember the picture that he painted of People dragging sacrifices, animals along the way as they would bring these, these animals to the temple to be sacrificed. And if you can imagine in this case, here they're bringing their, their most defective animals. Going, I'm not going to give that. That sheep looks really, that, that's a good one. That's, I'm going to keep that for myself. Where's the one that has cancer, a cancerous tumor? Where's the, one that is, where's the one that is blind? Where's the one that's missing a leg? That's the one we'll give to the Lord. 
And the priests were in on this. In fact, the priests were celebrating this. They're saying, you don't have to give your best. Just give something, give anything. It doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. The Lord's issue here is not so much with the people, it's with the priests. The Lord says this, present that to your governor in verse 8. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Try doing that with taxes is what the Lord is saying here. You owe tax money and uh, instead of uh, offering money down to Harrisburg or down to Washington, D.C., why don't, why don't you look around the house and see if you could come up with a few old mattresses and drag them down to Washington and say, maybe they're worth five or ten bucks. Take some old food that you find in the cupboards, expired food, and say, well, they got to be worth something. Can you imagine showing up in Harrisburg with that? Well, I don't really have a check with me. But I do have a car full of old games that are hopefully worth something. Can we have a garage sale down here or something? The Lord is saying, try that with the governor. Try that with the civil leadership and see if they take that. If they won't take it, how much more should the Lord of glory, the Great One, receive these kind of offerings? In fact, he says in verse 11, he says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. He's talking about a future age when there is pure and undefiled worship, not just in Israel, but everywhere. And nobody is dragging up old raggedy sheep that are blind and defective. But the ultimate sacrifice, whom all these sheep pointed to, will have already been given. And we will forever say, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. I was preaching in the nursing homes this past week, and we were talking in John chapter 1, where John the Baptist says, there is the Lamb of God. Why would he say Lamb? Why didn't he say, there's the frog of God? There's the Lamb of God, this whole sacrificial system. There is the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice given for us, the unblemished one, who takes away the sins of the world. We were talking about this in the home group, that the, the Lord takes our sins so seriously that he gave his own son. And Jesus Christ did not go and do it under coercion. Any vision that has the Father saying, you're going to do this, and the Son's going, no, I don't want to do that. It's not, not the biblical picture at all. In fact, Jesus says, I lay down my life willingly. The Father sends the Son, and the Son comes willingly, and forever his people will sing to that Lamb who takes away our sins, who takes away the sin of the world. In every place, incense will be offered, verse 8, to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Then he says this, speaking of cheating and giving cheap offerings. He says, verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock. So this person has a nice male sheep in his flock, unblemished, undefiled, and he vows it. 
So he says, Lord, I'm going to give this sheep to you. Lord, I, I give it as a sacrifice. And yet when it comes to actual sacrifice time, instead of taking that, that sheep that he has vowed to the Lord, this male in his flock, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. blemished. He, makes a, he makes an exchange. He says, well, I, I know I vowed this. I know I promised to give this good sheep. But instead of giving the good sheep, I'm going to give the Lord the one that is blemished. And God says this, for I am I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among, among the nations. This whole, this whole matter of um, giving that which is defiled. We don't, we don't give sheep anymore. But the Bible tells us to offer our bodies as uh, living sacrifices. Romans chapter 12. Offer up our, our bodies. Lord, we come before you in the church today. And we say to you, Lord, we don't want to offer you anything that is defiled, anything that is cheap, anything that is defective. Lord, we come, we come before you and we ask you, God, that you would, you would take our lives and you would, uh, you'd make us holy before you. Lord, that you would teach us to sin less. We, we recognize, Lord, that the, the, the penalty of sin has already been paid. And the power of sin was broken as soon as we came to you and surrender by grace through faith. But, Lord, we want to, we want to daily, God, we want to, we want to offer up our lives. Lord, we want to become more holy. That, that, is, that is the prayer of a Christian's heart. Lord, make me more like Jesus. Make me more like him. Sanctify me, Lord, in the, in the Holy Spirit. And if that's true for the people, it's most definitely true for the spiritual leadership. I know what a convicting word to pastors. Makes me want to fall on my face before the Lord. Let us not offer that which is blemished. James Montgomery Boyce, in preaching on this text of Scripture, he references uh, the Billy Graham Association, where there was a, a World Congress on Evangelism back in 1966. And there was a message then presented all those years ago, over 50 years ago, called Stains on the Altar referencing this kind of teaching that is coming from the book of Malachi. And in this sermon, there's a suggestion that many of these outstanding evangelical leaders had offered God defiled sacrifices in different areas. This is so profound, it seems worth actually going through the things that were listed at that Congress. The first thing that was mentioned was their conversion. That is pastor's conversion. He says this, many preach who are not genuinely saved. Richard Baxter said in the work referred to earlier, God never saved any man for being a preacher. How do we have stains on the altar? Well, 
we have stands on the altar where it is possible, and we see this in the world today, where we have pastors, we have preachers who are not even saved themselves. What an indictment. People listening to a spiritual leader, and he himself has not regenerated. His, his soul has not been made alive before the Lord. How, how profound to think about. There have been men who have been saved under their own preaching. They begin to expound the text, and as they're reading and as they're talking about the things of Scripture, all of a sudden God convicts their heart, and they are instantly changed. And I think about those who listen to pastors and those who listen to preachers and ministers and take their counsel, take their advice, listen to their sermons. And yet they themselves are not saved. The second thing he says here is their call to service. This is, a, this is another stain on the altar. Their call to service. Many preach, he says, who have no call from God to do so. Let me just stop there for a second. I may be relatively young, but I'm old-fashioned in, in this sense. For a man to be a pastor, he must be called. He must be called. There, there, there has been teaching out there that says, well, any godly man will do. As long as he's a man of character, he has godliness in his life, he can do some teaching, he's an okay preacher, or he's an okay teacher. As long as he meets some of those different requirements, go ahead and put him in the pulpit. Go ahead and let him lead the church. In fact, there have been those who have advocated and those who have said there doesn't really have to be a calling. There's no specific calling. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says very clearly and unequivocally, and he gave pastors. He gave. He gave pastors. He gave teachers. There must be a calling into the ministry. There must be a calling into the pastorate. There must be a calling to preach. And any man who sees it just as some kind of nice profession to get in, he's just going to get in and, well, maybe he'll even, uh, he'll even do okay for himself. After all, pastors only work an hour a week. He says this, many preach who have no call from God to do so, and thousands more are not sure if they belong in the ministry. Many, many, he says, no doubt, rightly, drop out each year to enter secular professions. We bemoan those who drop out of ministry, and sometimes it is sad. But sometimes it's the best thing a man can do if he's not called by the Lord to do what he's doing. Stains on our altar, stains in, in the clergy, their devotional life. He goes on to say, in a recent survey conducted at a theological seminary in the United States, 93% of the students acknowledged that they had no devotional life whatsoever. Can you imagine that in, in seminaries and Bible colleges? Pastors who do not pray in their own time. 
pastors who are not spending time with the Lord on their face before the Lord, pastors who are not reading the word of God. And he says this, their message. Countless preachers offer a watered-down, man-pleasing message instead of the true and disturbing message of the word of God. Their social concern. We are surrounded by people with immense social needs. Many pastors as well as laymen are unconcerned. Does it concern us that children in Syria are being gassed? Does it concern us that there are widows and weak ones Speaking of God's concern for the weak and his care for the orphan, his care for the widow, his care for those who don't have a lot in life. The chlorine is killing them in that nation. Does that, does that concern us? May I, can I just ask something as I was thinking about this? It seems right that we that we interfere when there are great atrocities in the world, that America does something. That seems right. I, I remember these, these images uh, coming out of North Korea from a, a person who escaped North Korean, a North Korean prison camp. In, in pictures, he was drawing people that were naked, trying to catch rats to eat them raw because they were so malnourished. Was it right to interfere with Hitler? Would it be right to interfere with North Korea? Could it, could it be that we have a log in our own eyes? Is it right to interfere with America when we've butchered tens of millions of babies in the womb? Isn't that, isn't that something that we, we, find, we find it right, and rightly so, to interfere with those who are committing great atrocities. What about God's judgment on this nation for the butchering of children? We need to be careful about being high-minded. But we do need to be concerned about the social welfare of our, of our world of our nation, of our city. The last thing he says here is their evangelism. One of the great old preachers said, I preach always as a dying man to dying men. Yet many preachers talk as if life is unending, hell is a fantasy, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is unnecessary for salvation. How can ministers of the word of God become so unconcerned, so careless? There's one more, actually, their relationship to their brethren. Many preachers have allowed minor doctrinal matters and jealousies to divide them and weaken their, their ministries. He goes on to say this. I am particularly concerned about the sermons many preachers offer to God on Sunday morning. 
Years ago, a distinguished preacher, Montgomery Boyce says, who had spent a summer listening to others preach, told me it was all pretty thin gruel. This is my judgment, too, if indeed my own assessment is not worse. Where are the great themes of Scripture, he says? You do not find them in the majority of a sermon topics listed in the Saturday edition of most city newspapers. Where is the effort that is necessary to make a sermon say something worth crossing the town or even crossing the street to hear? God can no doubt rightly say of many ministers today, it is you, O priests, who despise my name. You place defiled food on my altar. These are sobering words. The Lord has more to say to the priests. Not only are they offering polluted sacrifices, but they are corrupting biblical teaching. Notice what it says here about this uh, covenant that the Lord had made with the priests, and in particular their father, Levi. He says this in verse 4 of chapter 2, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand. He's talking to the priests, and he's saying, I, I made a covenant with your father Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what had he instructed, what had he instructed Levi to do? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 33, if you flip in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 33, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 8, 8 through 11. He's, he's talking to Levi, the, the head of the tribe of, of Levi. If you remember, Jacob had 12 different sons. Uh, the uh, 12 sons become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, Levi is the priestly tribe. A priest had to be a Levite, although not all Levites were priests. But if you were going to be a priest under the Mosaic Covenant and under the covenant given with the Levites, with Levi, you had to be a Levite. Verse 8, And of Levi said, Give to Levi your Thummim, Thummim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at... Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. Now here's, here's the priest's job. Here's what he's saying is their job to do. They shall, verse 10, they shall teach Jacob your rules. What was the priest to do? He was to be a teacher. You shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance. And accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate them, that they rise not again. So they are to teach, they are to teach what they have been given. Here's what they're to teach. They're to teach the truth. They're to teach the truth. 
We live in this uh, we live in this day and age that talks about my truth and your truth and his truth and her truth. Truth is truth. Truth isn't about opinion, not about how I feel or how you feel. When the priest was to teach, he was not to teach his so-called truth, whatever that means. He was to teach the true word of God. Whatever God said, whether the priest liked it or whether the priest didn't like it, he was to teach it. This is why uh, Jesus said in John chapter 17, he says, uh, sanctify them in the truth. It's amazing how the scripture talks about truth. It's everywhere. Truth, truth, truth. Sanctify them, he said in John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We live in a day and age when the church is getting further and further away from even liking or accepting its responsibility to simply teach the truth. You say, well, no one will listen. What pastors say, can't fill a church. Who's going to listen to an exposition? Who's going to listen to scripture being read in long detail? That's not anointed. What we need is somebody who just gets up there and spits and yells a lot. And says things that bring forth a thunderous amen every 10 seconds. The priest was not coming under his own authority. I just tell you something, priests, pastors really have no authority. None. See how much how much authority does a priest have? How much authority does a pastor have? Zero. The only authority he has is to faithfully proclaim a word that is not his own. Whether the text is hard or whether the text is easy. Oh, he's to do it in love and, and in compassion. But he's to teach the truth. A pastor who's been called by God would rather teach the truth. He'd rather die than to get up and give words that are simply his own thoughts. You see, where does it say that in the text? Verse 6 of chapter 2. True instruction, true instruction, or the instruction of truth, it could be said. True instruction was in his, his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from, he turned many from iniquity. So a few things in regard to this whole teaching of truth. The first is that this is a covenant of fear. The priest, or in our modern day case, even though he's not the equivalent, but the, the spiritual leadership within the church, the pastors, etc. Are men who fear God. 
you fear the Lord. When I when I listen to preaching and I hear I hear a pastor fears God, it is evident. When I listen to somebody like a Martin Lloyd Jones preach, I hear the fear of God. I hear God. Or Alistair Begg. Or we could go on and on and on. Verse 5, my covenant with, was with him. It was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant. Here it is. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood. Here's what it means to fear God. He stood in awe. He stood in awe of my name. So the spiritual leader has a great fear of God. And here, here's what his preaching does. Here, here's the effect of it. Here's what he preaches. You say, how can I, how can I know if this, if this preaching or this teaching is from the Lord? Well, it's the truth. It's, it's the word of God. It's a man who fears God. And it turns people from sin. That's what it says in verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. Here it is. And he turned many from iniquity. What, is, what does this kind of preaching do? It, it brings people, not because of his word, but because of the word of God, it brings people to an accountability for their sin. But the last thing it does, according to verse 9, is it does not show partiality. So it doesn't say, well, I know that so-and-so is here, so I can't preach that message. Or I know that there are certain people dealing with this matter or this issue, so we dare not touch that. Or the rich are here or the poor are here, so we can't, we can't deal with those issues. There's, there's no partiality, verse 9. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my laws. Here it is. Here's how they teach. This is the opposite of true teaching, but shows partiality in their instruction. Remember, remember James when he when he talks about teaching, he says, you know, you you have a you have a nice church service and, and you have seats for everyone, and he says, all of a sudden a, a rich person comes in. And everyone gets nervous and says, oh, my goodness, do you know who that is? That's so-and-so. He's a multi, he's a multi, multi-millionaire. We need to give him a seat of honor, and we dare, not, we dare not touch any sacred cows with this kind of individual. James says uh, that's not how it is to be in the house of God. doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. doesn't matter if you're black or if you're white. Doesn't matter if you're young or whether you're old. Can I just tell you how we reach? How do we reach white people in this community? How, how do we reach black people in this community? How do we reach um, poor people and rich people? Do we have the black focus group? Or do we have the, the focus group for uh, for young white singles? 
Now, here, here, here's, what, here's what the scripture does. It levels everything. We treat all people the same. We treat all people with dignity and respect. We don't, we don't pander to anybody. We, by God's grace, don't leave anybody out. We don't have special focus groups for this person or that person. I, I, I am convinced that what people want in this day and age, I, I think, maybe I'm preaching to myself, I think people are so tired about this focus group or this group or that. Listen, when people come into the church, they just want to know, am I welcome here? Am I going to be treated with dignity and honor? Listen, there's, by the way, there's only one race, one race, one race. That's the human race. And I, I'm convinced over the years we have seen older people come into this church. We've seen younger people. We've seen black people. We've seen Hispanic, you name it. And I'm convinced and uh, that the reason that is is because we don't have any special program. We don't show because it would be unbiblical teaching to show partiality. That's sin. That's sin. Then he gets into this last thing that the priests are allowing, and that's this whole thing of marriage. There is this um, chaos that is ensuing in society. Instead of being faithful in their marriages, there are, are many marriages breaking up. And he talks about, in particular, a few different things, but one of the things that he talks about is marriage to unbelievers. Chapter 2, verse 11 says this, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, I'm going to be very clear here. Uh, the scripture never teaches, in fact it's against, in, listen, any person of any ethnic background can get married to any other person of any ethnic background. In fact, we encourage it. Unfortunately, there has been in our history, there has been, even in different parts, not all, different parts of the church. Oh, you can't have you can't have a Hispanic person with a white person. You can't have a white person with a black person. No, no, no. In fact, um, remember in the Old Testament, uh, Moses married somebody who was dark. And um, there were people, including his uh, brother and sister, didn't like it. And they got in hot water for it, big time. It is, uh, it is my joy. If it doesn't matter, listen, we, we don't care here. We don't care if you have a person of Scottish background and Irish background. That, that might have been a big deal back in the day in New York City. In fact, it was, even among whites, Caucasians. You had people who say, well, you know, I'm Greek and I can't marry this person because they're Irish. I 
I remember when I was growing up, my dad would always say, he'd say, you know, one of the greatest tests of true racism is if you tell your child that they cannot marry somebody of a different skin color. Good test. So when we are talking about, when we're talking about marrying the wrong person here, we're not talking about skin color. We're not talking about uh, what country they're from or what social background they're from. What the word of God here is concerned about is people who are believers who marry unbelievers. In other words, the Lord is saying, look, you can marry any person of the opposite sex. Sad we have to say that, isn't it? What are we going to have to define next? You can marry any person of the opposite sex, O believer, as long as you are a believer and they are a believer. Outside of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ, marriage and who you marry is the biggest decision a person will ever make in their whole life. It is a covenant between two people and their God. It's a big deal. And there is a lot of pain involved. Somebody says, well, I'll marry an unbeliever. They're really, really nice and everything's going to go really well and and uh, he loves me or she loves me. Oh, the pain that is going to come, the pain that is going to come. You see, why is pain going to come? Because if Jesus lives in that believer, he's going to be grieved. And if he's grieved, that person will be grieved. The countless testimonies of somebody who said, I knew better, I'm going to marry this person or that person. Notice what it says here, the daughter of a foreign god. That's the issue. Second Corinthians chapter 6, if you flip over there quickly, we need to move very quickly here. Second Corinthians chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living. God. And so these people are doing whatever they want. They're marrying whomever they want. And then they're coming before the Lord and they're weeping before the Lord. And the Lord's saying, I'm not even listening to your weeping. By the way, they're weeping at the altars. Regular people were not allowed to go to the altars. So these are priests. Again, the priests are, are running the show here. They're allowing all of this. They're complicit in all of this. Then the Lord says some powerful things about marriage. He tells us that it's a covenant. Notice verse 14, and we end with this, 14 through 16. But you say, why, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant. Did you know that? Marriage, and we could go into this for a long time, marriage is more about holiness than happiness. 
I would urge our congregation to resist the worldly teaching that says it's all just about you being happy all the time. It's a, it, listen, it's a satanic lie. It's about our holiness. Do not leave the wife of your youth. Do not be faithless to her. That's why we say vows, because God's there at the wedding. You say it's just a piece of paper. It's just a little contract we sign. It doesn't really matter. Oh, it matters. God's a witness. God is there. God is sealing it. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And let listen, in your spirit, don't let your heart listen to worldly teaching. Stop listening to worldly teaching. Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Oh, I wish I could say so much more. Think marriage is all ease and roses? No way. No way. Yeah, but I see it on TV. It's all perfect all the time if you find the right person. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, so he, he doesn't love her by divorcing her. But I don't feel anything. No, this is, this is action. You don't love her by divorcing her, says the Lord. Covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, another translation just simply said God, it could be translated either way, God hates divorce. That's what it's saying here. So guard yourself, priest, pastor, in your spirit. And do not be faithless. I'll flip here one, one second. I know we're running out of time. Proverbs 2, 7. You don't have to flip there. I'll just, I'll just read it to you. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 7. Stores up wisdom for the upright. Where am I at here? Proverbs 2, verse 7. Stores up wisdom for the upright. Um, he is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And if you go all the way down to verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, for her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Or her house sinks down to death, etc., etc. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. We've had an atmosphere of uh, prayer here in the last couple of weeks, and 
you know, this is uh, this is the word of God. And, and sometimes when we listen to these kind of things, then we, we need to come to a place. Here, here's where we need to come to in this, this kind of message. We need to come to a place where we just say we're listening to all this kind of stuff and we're going, oh, Lord, help us. At least if we're Christians. If we're not Christians, we go, yeah, we, we got it down. But if we're Christians, we're going, oh, oh help. This is where grace comes in. Grace, regardless of uh, sins, mistakes that have already been made. We just come before the Lord and we say, by your grace, Lord, we will make it. By your grace, Lord, we will, we will win. By your grace, we will, we will persevere and we will have victory. By your grace. Can we pray that together? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. We thank you, Lord, that even even though we have, we fail in all these different areas, and as we think about spiritual leadership, the bar being set so high, Lord, we come back to you, Jesus, and we just again we come to the foot of the cross and we say thank you, thank you for redeeming us, thank you. Would you stand with me as we close with Amazing Grace? Amazing Grace. How so